The next concept I'm going to be talking about in this iceberg is the idea that um, socioeconomics is backwards. Socioeconomics is the idea that social mores and values determine economic decisions. Where my theory on this is that economic incentives determine social and moral values and social mores. Like the most politically correct example I can give on this, because this is very controversial, a lot of the examples I would have, would be the idea that for younger people, living at home has become destigmatized. Uh, it's way more common, say, for somebody under 35 now, but out of college or maybe they didn't go to college, but like done with their schooling to still live with their parents. And this has been common in places like Italy and Greece for much longer, but this started to become mainstream in America post the great financial crisis in 2008. And this might be aging me, but when I was in high school or college, there was a real stigma against people living with their parents past the age of 22 in the United States. Uh, you were supposed to be on your own back then. Uh, no exceptions. Some people are strict enough to kick their kids out at 18. Uh, however, th I think the reason why that stigma was there is because it was relatively affordable to live on your own back then compared to today. Like if you adjust the cost of renting an apartment and having a car and all the basic needs of living independently in a major metropolitan area relative to wages pre-2008, it was a lot more affordable than it was post-2008. And as a result of this, the fact that a lot of people who were really otherwise intended to be independent and had that goal couldn't just because of economic constraints and the fact that real wages dropped relative to cost of living, particularly in the cities that were driving most of the jobs, um, made it so that it just no longer was financially viable for a lot of younger people to live independent. So they had to live with their parents by default. Um, and because this economic incentive became a much bigger dilemma and way more common among people who would not be stigmatized as losers historically, the society eased off and became a little bit more tolerant of such an arrangement where in 2000, it was utterly unacceptable for somebody like 26 to 30 years old to live with their parents. Whereas now nobody even bats an eye on it. It wasn't because all of a sudden parents became a lot more empathetic in the last 20 years. No, it's because it became financially unviable to hold that standard. And so as a result, the standard was dropped. And you can look at the cost of, of one type of lifestyle or moral value and not whether it goes up or down itself, but whether it goes up or down relative to alternatives and that will determine how the morals change. And so, yeah, economics drives social change more than social change driving economics. And so as a result, if you are somebody who want, who really cares about social issues in politics and culture and you want to change them, instead of trying to bang people on the head and say, like, you need to adopt my values and vote my way because of 
X, Y, and Z. Instead, you need to pass economic policies that incentivize people living what you determine to be a more morally optimal lifestyle. Because if the financial incentives line up with the social policy goal that you want, you are more likely to have people adopt that lifestyle because it becomes relatively more economically advantageous to do so than it would without that policy or on the opposite side, a policy that runs counter to that. Like, well, that's what I think, again, social conservatives have a problem. So their lifestyle has become less affordable relative to a more socially permissive lifestyle over the last 30 years. And that might explain a lot of the social trends in the Western world. I mean, it actually probably goes back 60 years, sorry. But that is my theory on inverse socioeconomics. The next one I'm going to talk about is um, lying flat and the Atlas Shrugged moment for China. Like, and I talked about this with Chris Street in the interview I did recently, but I think the idea is that I label this just as tongue in cheek, the incels destroying the Chinese economy. And that's just because they have a lot of young men who can't afford either the dowry or to buy a house or whatever social status symbol they need to impress a potential spouse. And they will never be able to based on their income and career trajectory. And these are people with college educations. It's not just your typical factory worker. And so they decide to opt out and just make a bare enough to support a bare living uh, through Upwork and other gig economy stuff. And then just chill out and play video games the rest of the time. And it's called lying flat. It's most common in Asia, but they have other movements like NEATS and anti-work, which I've talked about on this channel before. And a lot of this is a byproduct simply just because the, the marginal difference in your income between the cost of just surviving versus the cost of thriving is wider than ever due to social safety nets and um, a variety of other things going on in the economy, it's fairly easy to just get by, or at least relatively to the past. But due to things such as how housing prices have been distorted in many countries in the world, and how um, the top of the career hierarchies has gotten a lot more competitive, uh, it's a lot harder to get to the level which is considered like a traditional upper middle class lifestyle. That has gotten a lot more expensive relative to the gains and in incomes in that demographic or that perspective demographic compared to whereas just getting by is, has not gotten any more difficult. It's probably actually gotten easier. So as a result, since the gap between surviving and thriving is wider and feels more unattainable, less people around the world are deciding to pursue it. And we really risk just a collective Atlas shrugged moment but not necessarily because these are anti-government people who just don't like taxes. It's just they feel like the juice isn't worth the squeeze. And we and it's the most at risk in China. And that's why we're seeing the issues with high youth unemployment, despite having a growing economy. I think this is a, a cause of that. But it's not just China. This can happen elsewhere, too. Uh, the next one is I call complexity as a cope. It's the idea that a lot of economists will make increasingly complex economic theories 
to try to factor in um, why their policy goals um, are good for the economy, like all those various, as you see in early in the iceberg, there's like, there's like five or six different supposed schools of economics that really just are all environmentalist economics or trying to fit the environmentalist goal into the framework of neoclassical or Keynesian economics, because you just think that's a more admirable goal than actual economic growth. Uh, but that's, so I, I, I call it complexities a cope because the more try to complex variables you have, you're coping for the fact you want to really just add something that you find personally important, whether it's a moral value or um, a certain ideological cause or whatever, to shove that in and you'll add as much variables and complexity to economic theory to make that make sense. Uh, next is mental health and economics. Um, I think that this, especially as mental health issues continue to become more um, prominent, uh, I don't think mental health is being correctly factored into the economy. Um, like the spending on mental health probably actually boosts GDP, even though it's a symptom of a society that is getting less healthy and quality of life is going down. So, yeah, I mean, if your GDP grows 5% because people are spending 20% more on antidepressants and um, therapists, and this is an extreme example of this, but you get my point. It does not it's similar to the, what I talked about with the social support systems. A lot of this mental health is a byproduct again of having the lack of social support systems. So instead of being able to talk to some close members of your community um, or your family members or your friends, you now have to pay a therapist to listen to you because there's nobody in your life who actually cares enough to pay attention to you. I'm not saying there's not severe mental health issues that require therapists. There definitely are. But I think the, the answer is like that I hear blatantly a lot. It's like when somebody has a personal problem, instead of being willing to listen, you just tell them nonchalantly, go to therapy. That's not a solution. That's just a sign of like, again, the disintegration of the community, which is not really being factored into the decline of the economy, like the, to the growth, economic growth, it should be a, a negative externality that's not being priced in. And yeah, if you have like, say, look, say maybe you have more productivity by working people longer hours for less pay, but if that causes everybody to be mentally unhealthy and unstable, um, and as a result, you have to spend more on medication or therapy or worse, you see more like, I don't know, crime or other negative consequences for a less mentally healthy society or lower life expectancy or whatever because of it. Is that really a proper trade-off? Again, this is really a difficult thing to quantify because this is a more subjective issue. But um, I think that it is something that really, I think that the economic profession and research has not really dived into they've gone to behavioral economics now behavioral ticks will cause the rational man theory to deteriorate a little bit which i talked about in literal iceberg but 
Uh, mental health and economics, I think, is another one that's not really being properly discussed. Um, the last one I'm going to talk about, because the other one is going to be political economy and goal seek, which is kind of the idea that economics really is political economy. And you, if you're running on a certain economic policy, I've mentioned this in earlier tiers of this iceberg and in other videos, that you'll find economists to create the intellectual mathematical framework to, to justify why your suggested economic policy is good or why your rivals is bad. Um, so the last one we're actually going to talk about is the Doonesbury effect actually being the most important concept of economics. Uh, for those who are not familiar with the Doonesbury effect, the Doonesbury effect, which I'll probably do a whole video on it, is the idea that people have a general of a hard time ratcheting down living standards. Uh, people get accustomed to a certain quality of life. And if due to external circumstances or personal bad decisions, um, they are no longer able to maintain that living standard. Uh, even if their income can no longer support it, people will continue to spend like they had that previous level of income because the thought of having to cut your quality of life is so bad, especially if it's a more permanent realignment and not just something that's like a temporary setback. Like say you lose a job temporarily, but you know you get one that paid just as much or better in a couple months. That's not deuce and berry effect. That's just mining a gap. Or say like you, a deuce and berry effect to decline would be like, say like you work in an industry that becomes obsolete rapidly overnight. You can't find a job that pays half of what you used to it. And that's, so you may have to take something that takes 40 or 30% of your old salary and that's your, your new normal. Yeah. And yet you keep spending like you did in your old um, life. That's the example of the Dusenberry effect. People will do anything to keep their old standard of living. Um, I just know several examples of this, like, and this is why you have to be careful with lifestyle inflation. Which I'll, like you cannot, you have to be very slow as you build up your career to increase the amount of spending you have and the qual and the lifestyle qualities you pay for. Because if there is there a chance you have a setback, it's going to be very hard for you to adjust back down. That's why credit card debt is such a common problem because people have circumstances that they cannot um, that they have a disruption in their earning power for some various reason or another, and they fail to adjust. So they keep spending like they used to. And even though they know they should cut back, they can't because they've been accustomed to such a lifestyle. And this is not just really in purely um, spending decisions. This also can apply to geography. Like say if you're from a town that you didn't like, that's just a poor quality life and you move to a much nicer city, but that nicer city is more expensive and you no longer can afford to live in the nicer city because of your financial circumstances have changed or it's gotten more expensive. The option could be just to move back to your hometown, but people will not do that because they're used to the better quality of life in the town that they moved to. That, that like the idea of moving back home is just unacceptable. Uh, this could also happen with dating and romantic partners where you, when you've, don't have that much dating experience 
you're okay with dating somebody who may not be as high quality because you haven't really experienced a higher quality romantic partner. But once you do get to a certain threshold and you have a great experience with that, and it doesn't work out for some reason. And you're like, you can't date people who are what you would perceive to be not at the same level as your ex. And that is romantic Dusenberry effect uh, is that, it, dating gets harder as people have had more relationships because not because there's less options. In fact, there's usually oftentimes there's more options. The problem is that they're accustomed to such a quality from the, and they cannot adjust their standards down. And um, this doesn't even, and then the most dangerous part of this is actually on the country level where a country as a whole is used to a certain standard of living but then because of geopolitical shifts or other economic shifts, the workers in that country are no longer competitive and they have to adjust down to a standard of living. But politicians will never tell them that because that's how they lose elections. And so that's how you get populism and other negative political consequences because people feel like they're entitled to a certain living standard, even as economic conditions have changed, that your nation as a whole is not competitive. I mean, look at what happened to Germany after World War One is like the most extreme and worst example of how that can happen. A country that was accustomed to being a dominant world power and being a leader in living standard and quality of life and a variety of other things. And then after the First World War, their whole economy and society got hollowed out and they didn't take it very well. Um, and you could see like the political volatility in the US as inflation started to rise in the 60s and the 70s. And you see the rise of political populism now as since basically 2015 when you have to 16 years of real wages falling. And so the, this whole idea of people not being able to adjust the Duesenberry effect creates a lot of the inefficiencies in the global economy and a lot of the inconsistencies that people kind of subconsciously feel but can't really objectively quantify. Uh, that concludes the iceberg of finance. Let me know what you think and which one of these um, alternative theories that I have you think is the most legitimate and or the most interesting. Uh, I'd love to hear you guys discuss in the comments and if I actually make specific videos about any of these concepts other than compensation theory, which I've already done. Uh, thanks for watching.